0: Good evening, welcome. My name is Matt Nash and I'm the executive director of CASE, which is the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, and we're particularly uh, thrilled that you can join us tonight for one of our two highlights of the year. Each year, we identify uh, individuals who are particularly deserving of recognition for their work in the field of social entrepreneurship, and this is one of those two nights. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar with CASE, CASE, the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship, is an education and research center based here at Fuqua, Really, we, we focus on promoting the entrepreneurial pursuit of social impact, and since we're here at a business school, we're particularly interested in the thoughtful adaptation of business expertise. Really, we think of ourselves in the in the work of um, developing individuals and leaders to change the world. And, Um, This gives us an opportunity to bring folks to campus who are truly changing the world in in their innovations and their work. And um, this is our third annual award presentation for the CASE Award for Enterprising Social Innovation, which recognizes outstanding individuals, organizations, and companies whose innovations blend methods from the worlds of business and philanthropy to create sustainable social value and they have the potential for large-scale impact. Now we've got a few goals in offering this award, this being our third award in particular, these goals are to identify and celebrate the traits that these entrepreneurs must possess in order to be successful in their endeavors, including creativity, commitment, resilience, and a results-focused drive to create and sustain positive social impact. And we're also interested by offering this award in raising public awareness of the outstanding individuals, organizations, and companies who endeavor to achieve more effective, more sustainable, and scalable impact through enterprising social innovation. We seek nominations from the public, from students, from others, and what we're really finding, uh, what we're really seeking in those nominations are those who blend methods from business and philanthropy In order to really consider a a nominee to be enterprising, we want to see that the innovation involves some business-inspired methods, whether through adaptation of business methods to create social value or operation of social purpose businesses, formation of cross-sector partnerships, uh, and the innovation itself can be pursued through nonprofit, for-profit, or hybrid forms. We're especially interested in those innovations that create social value that can scale and endure. Um, this form of social entrepreneurship is not just about temporary relief or charitable effort, but we're really looking for something that is about creating value that's likely to be sustained and scaled over time. And we're particularly interested in those entrepreneurs and their organizations and innovations that challenge the status quo. Um, we seek nominees who have broken new ground, developed new models, and pioneered new approaches in addressing critical social needs. Um, We accept the nominations, as I said, fairly openly from the public, and we have a a group of uh, staff and faculty and students that look at those. We're interested in in nominations from the field of poverty, health, um, environment, and so many other fields. And um, we're particularly thrilled that you can join us tonight to honor our our award winner tonight, um, because really he is an outstanding example of a pioneer in this field who has worked uh, many years to um, work at the intersection of technology and social impact. Um, Our speaker tonight, um, by using two Caltech degrees and the experience of co-founding two successful uh, Silicon Valley companies, has created a deliberately non-profit high-tech company, Benetech, more than 20 years ago. His passion for social change has led to many awards, most notably the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship, and starting tonight, the Case Award for Enterprising Social Innovation. Uh, and I, I don't know if some folks had a chance to join us earlier today, but the, we were thrilled that the High Tech Club actually had a panel on disruptive um, technology for social impact. And Jim was kind enough to, to join us for that panel and really open our eyes to the many incredible things that are going on around the world, not just through what he's doing, but the other organizations and ventures he's aware of. So please join me in welcoming a rocket scientist, a serial entrepreneur, and outstanding social entrepreneur, Jim Fruchterman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Beth.
1: appreciate it. Yeah, great. So um, I want to start my story by taking you back to a classroom, a graduate classroom I was in. Um, I was an engineering student, and it was a modern optics class. And because this was the 70s, all the jobs for engineers like me were in the military industrial complex. So our professor was giving us this cool example of a technology. It was a optical system that would recognize a target. So let's say I had a, you know, like, like, a, like, a, like a tank or something that I wanted to blow up. And I had sort of a picture of that tank. And then what I would do is I'd fire my missile, and it would you know, zoom around. And then the camera would spot the tank and blow it up. <laughs> and I went back to my dorm and I said, well, that's really cool technology. I wonder if there's a more socially beneficial application of that technology. So, my idea was that instead of recognizing tanks or airfields to blow them up, you could recognize letters and words, and you could, might be able to read to blind people. You know? And so I was really excited. I didn't know any blind people. I just sort of imagined this. And you have to realize that this is the way geeks think, right? You know, We were like, you know, oh, this is cool. What else can we do with it? Because that's, I think, what motivates a lot of people to go into the technology field. So, and I wanted to invent something important. Well, this turned out to be like the only good idea I came up with in college or graduate school. So I ran to my professor and he explained that the National Security Agency had a device like this that cost several million dollars and that maybe I wouldn't be helping blind people right away with this expensive tool. But, but I carried that with me through sort of my career and of course what I wanted to be is I wanted to be a, a rocket scientist. I wanted to be a, an astronaut. I wanted to be a university professor. Uh, my eyes weren't good enough to be a pilot so I was you know, going to be a scientist astronaut. And so I went off to I get a PhD, and, um, but I happened to go to a, to a school in Silicon Valley. And, um, and there was this thing called entrepreneurship going on. And I had never heard about this during my undergrad career. And um, I and a couple of other engineering students started an entrepreneurship talk series in the engineering dorm at Stanford, the grad student dorm. And the first speaker had started a personal computer company named after our dorm, which at the time was quite famous. And the second speaker was a private entrepreneur starting a rocket company to compete with NASA. So very quickly, I uh, took a leave of absence, joined this private rocket company. And the rocket was built to launch vehicles to compete with NASA. And this was quite a while ago. And our, and our launch vehicle was set up in southern Texas. And our business manager was actually from the area. So I'm going to go immediately to the moment of truth. The rocket is on the launch pad, and she's doing the countdown. And it's, you know, five, four, three, two, one. Oh, shit. <laughs> the rocket blew up on the launch pad. So, so this is sort of my moment of truth. And there are a few of them in my story. But this is the one that's like, am I going to go back to grad school after blowing up a rocket? <laughs> no, I'm going to start my own rocket company. And for some reason, uh, even though I did get a meeting with Larry Sansini, the number one attorney in Silicon Valley for helping get started, we couldn't raise $300 million. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not going back to grad school. I can't get another rocket company going. And I'm kind of, I was really kind of bummed. I'm like, What do I do? And my boss from the rocket company said, well, I know this guy from HP. He wants to start a company. I said, ooh, <laughs> what kind of company? Well, I don't know. He's a chip designer, so let's see what he comes up with. So, we went out to dinner, and you know we kind of got to know each other a little bit. And I said, "So, what's what's the idea for the new company?" And he said, "Well, um, you know, I'm a chip designer, and I'm writing, I'm doing these kind of chips for HP, and they're kind of general purpose. And I want to do something that's really cool that could never be done until we had this new kind of chip technology." I said, "So, so what, what what's the idea?" I said, "I think I can make a chip that could read anything, it could recognize letters and words." And I was like, "That's my idea from college, you know? It's like..." you could make a reading machine for the blind with that. I mean, and so so I think it was this sort of like, there's something right going on here that this happened. So my story tonight is, is telling you essentially how, as a student, I came up with an idea that actually launched a social entrepreneurial career. I didn't know it at the time. We didn't have the label social entrepreneur at the time. And... And I didn't get there on a direct path, right? You know, I blew up a rocket, I did grad school, and you'll hear a little bit more about that path. But I want to kind of highlight the connections that we can make between the technologies we create, the companies we create, the intellectual property we create, and some of these social issues. Because helping blind people probably wasn't the most lucrative thing to do. But in my mind, it was the coolest thing. So anyway, so Eric suggested this idea. I said, That is so cool. We went back to Larry Sansini who kind of gave us a, well, that sounds fundable. Here are four venture capitalists you should call. And um, to make another long story short, we raised $25 million in venture capital to start an optical character recognition company that would be able to read anything. Now, the case to our investors was not helping blind people. It was scanning in documents for law firms and insurance companies and government agencies. I mean, you know, it, was, it was all about that sort of revolution. And, um, and it went well. We became... Um, one of the leading companies. And now that company is part of Nuance, which is the number one comp- public company in that segment. But Nuance is like 10 companies merged together. So mine was just one of those 10. But anyway, um, so I'm going to take you to another sort of moment of truth. So we've built the product. We're shipping it. We're maybe at, I don't know, $15 million a year. Of course, by this time, we had promised the VCs we'd be at 40 or 45 So we're a little bit behind plan, but not doing badly. And, um, and I'm the VP of marketing. And my former boss in the rocket company is the VP of engineering. And we still are talking about this reading machine for the blind. So we did a secret project and built a reading machine for the blind prototype. And we brought it to the board for the demonstration. So, so the, the, now this is back in the old days. So we had actually had to build our own scanner. So at the board table, we have the scanner, scans the piece of paper, which takes a picture of it. Then our secret sauce for our company was the character recognition that translated that into a word processor file, and then we had a first-generation voice synthesizer that then read aloud the text that was on the page. You know, these are the times treatment cells. But it wasn't quite that natural sounding. <laughs> and uh, and the investor said, "Wow, successful demo." Jim, you're the VP of marketing. You know, what's the market size for this? I said, "Well, you know, Ray Kurzweil invented this machine, and Xerox is selling it." and it's gonna be more expensive than ours, we're thinking that they're selling about $1 million per year. And the stunned silence elongated until finally one of the investors said, and exactly what is the connection to the $25 million we've invested in your firm? And I gave them the case for social responsibility. You know, our, 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 our customers will love us. The employees are enthusiastic about it. It'll break even at a million dollars a year, know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, you know, our, kind of, our investors kind of said, Yo, you know, no, you know, you know, you guys are still losing money, you're behind plan, you know, when you're at $250 million and, you know, throwing off a gross margin of this size and at margins of that size, then we'll talk about this social responsibility thing, but, but we don't want the management team distracted from anything other than doing what you promised us when we put the money in the firm. Which was a fair case for them to make, to be really honest. So, so, um, so I was kind of bummed, and I called up my attorney, and I said, The board vetoed the idea. And I tried to argue with them, and they said, No, we can't do it. And he said, Well, you could set up a deliberately nonprofit high tech company. And I, I kind of giggled, because, of course, our company was accidentally nonprofit along with most other high tech companies. So, so I said, Oh, that would be, we'd, we'd be like successful by definition. <laughs> Yeah, and so, um, so I went off to our board and said, you know, it's time for me to quit. And, uh, and they were worried that I would compete against the company and hire away all their engineers. I said, no, 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 just, just give me a really good deal on the reading machine for the blind for that segment, which you guys have already decided you don't want to do. I won't be distracting the company because I'll be outside the company, and I technically know how to do this without wasting your time. And so they agreed to a couple key things. One is uh, a non-compete. They paid me six months' salary. And they offered me trade credit. And this turned out to be essential. So I went to then to my biggest partner, which by this time was Hewlett Packard. They were the leading manufacturer of scanners at that time. And they agreed to cut a direct OEM deal with my nonprofit and give me trade credit. And I did that with one, our other big vendor. Within three years, this 501 c 3 charity, which had no donors, was a $5 million a year profitable social enterprise. Now, I used the term social enterprise. I had no idea what this was. I thought it was like one nut job in Silicon Valley not trying to make a billion dollars, because I put this venture inside of 51C3. And we didn't have any um, role models, because it was 1989. And, uh, but, but a couple years later, the IRS uh, was prompted to audit us, because a for-profit company decided to compete with us in this segment. And as soon as they launched their product, then Filed a complaint for unfair competition. And the IRS came in and said, What are you doing being profitable? And I said, What good is it being tax exempt if some days you don't have some profits to not pay taxes on? And they said, Oh, well, and we had to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then what they did is they made it our job to defend the IRS their decision to grant us 501 charitable status in the first place, which is an odd sort of thing. It's like justified to us why we were right to do what we did. And, um, and the only examples we could find of profitable nonprofits was a low-income housing development that for its first 10 years had run a surplus. Because what they did is they set aside some money for the eventual fact that they would have to replace the air conditioning units. And so their case was, yes, we're profitable, but we're actually allocating money for this capital improvement that you know we're going to have to make. And the IRS approved them as being charitable, even though they were profitable. And so we sold the IRS on the same thing. So but it was this interesting case to have to kind of defend against basically being a charity. So fast forward to around 2000. And we've been doing this for 10 years. And we've been staying at about $5 million. And our product was actually, our breakthrough product, was we t- turned a standard PC into a reading machine for the blind. So we sold you the pieces. And our, we st- our product started at five grand. And then it went from five to four to three to two and a half to two to 1800 to 1500 to 1200 because that's what happens in, in Silicon Valley. Our revenues stayed about the same, about five million bucks a year. Our margins went up because more and more things became software instead of hardware. And so we were basically a five million dollar venture. And I was getting, after 10 years, going, gee, what else, what else should we be doing? We have all these other ideas and we have no profits because we're running at break even to invest in anything new. So we were kind of stuck. And um, a guy that uh, had done a very successful roll up. A roll up is where you go out and you buy like four or five companies in the same field, you, you roll them up into one, you extract some cost savings, and, and, and basically you do it as a combination of, in round terms, half equity and half debt. This is, and So this guy said, I want to buy your nonprofit. And I turned him down. I said, No, I'm, I'm about social good, I'm a nonprofit, go away. So he came back two months later and said, Jim. Can you tell me what your aspirations are? Now, this turns out to be a negotiating ploy, but I'm an engineer. I don't get this. So I actually said, wow, I, I want to start more of these social ventures. I have ideas for helping the human rights field and, and, and you know, other things for people with disabilities. And, and uh, he said, great. Um, how about I give you five million bucks? You. Your nonprofit, right? Because I can't pocket the money. That would be illegal. But, you know, five million bucks, you and your engineers can stay in the nonprofit, and we're going to buy all the assets of your venture, and we're going to roll it up with these two other companies. So, in April of 2000, we did an almost all cash deal. Now, that's about when the dot com bubble popped. So, we were lucky rather than smart. I thought I was being conservative, but it was really good. So, so and I'm going to pause there for a second. And, and actually, I've kind of jumped over a whole bunch of stuff, but I'm going to now give you kind of more of a framework to put on that and also tell you what's happened since this asset sale. But if there's any questions about what I've kind of run through, I'll be glad to answer them on the fly or I'll keep going. So it's up to you guys what you want to do. So if you're interested, raise your hand. Okay. So so now it's uh, the dot-com bubble has popped. I've got $5 million. I'm renting my engineering team back to the acquirer because during, part of the deal was that they'd be able to get um, our engineers because in the dot-com bubble, it was very hard to hire engineers. So, so um, we have to create a wholly owned for-profit subsidiary to do the engineering consulting. Because the first year, it was over a million dollars. It would have been more than half of our income. That's how you lose your charitable status, is to do more than half of your activities not be charitable. And consulting is not considered a charitable activity for some odd reason, at least according to the IRS. And so, uh, so we had to create a hybrid venture model. Now, This turns out to be really quite handy, and the next big tech social enterprise that followed this is the Mozilla Foundation, the maker of the Firefox browser, because Mitchell Baker, the founder there, she had the same problem that I did: was that they had this project about creating choice in the the sort of browser world, created this cool product with an open source project, and they suddenly got ten or twenty percent of the browser share, and Google went. Oh my god, the default search engine for Firefox is the most valuable piece of internet property we could own. Let's start giving them 50 million dollars a year for it. And suddenly, Mozilla went from being a foundation with like, you know, all volunteers to getting 50 million bucks, and it wasn't clear whether that was going to be charitable or unrelated business income. So, Mozilla has the same structure, a wholly owned for-profit subsidiary that pays taxes on its profits, owned by a 501c3 parent charity. So and and these structure things, now, and I think this kind of gets back to the business-like thing. Nonprofits don't tend to think about this. But when you come out of business, you you know you go to your attorneys to solve your problems with structure solutions, right? That's their job. And so you tell them what your problem is, and they'll give you three ways to solve your problem. And each one will have pros and cons. So, That's basically what we did. But there there are so many more opportunities these days for solving social problems with novel structures that draw from the business community to solve the the structural problem while coming up with a way to sustain change at scale, because that is the ultimate goal of all these projects. So I'm going to cut to what we decided to do with the $5 bucks, And this is a process that we now do on a regular basis. Every year, we try to decide, of all the things we could do with technology to serve humanity, Where's the venture that we're going to pick where we can make a revolutionary impact on a social sector? So we have the same goal that venture capitalists do when they invest in high-tech companies. No VC invests in a company that says, we're going to be 20% cheaper than the status quo or 20% better. It's not interesting. You have to say, we're going to blow these guys up. We're going to be 5, 10, 20 times better. We're going to go to a market that no one has touched before because it was impossible because of our innovation. just like my board vetoed our reading machine for the blind project everybody in the tech business community is taught the moment you figure out this deal doesn't smell like it's going to make you know 50% a year uh, risk adjusted rate of you know drop it like a hot potato that's what everyone is trained to do and so we have all these people who just dump this stuff and in our mind it's like well wait a minute what if what if i mean a million-dollar-a-year break-even venture in the nonprofit world, or five million, those are barn burners compared to a traditional charity, right? So you can leverage change without actually needing any capital. And and we have gone basically ten years without any donations, and then we got five million bucks from it. So it's it's, it's there's some leverage opportunity. So our process is um, great return on investment. Of course, it's social return on investment, and we actually don't use social return on investment—the percentage thing because. I used to be a CFO, and if you give me a method where you tell me what the answer has to be and I can get there, that's a less useful tool. And so, because social returns are external to your organization. So we use benchmarking. And we're usually looking for if a unit of social good, you know, in a the, in the, uh, disaster relief, a unit of social good may be deliver a 50-pound bag of rice to a refugee for this price. That's, that's kind of a commodity unit of social good. But if we can solve, let's say, get a disabled student a book that they need for school. And we can do it for a 10th or a 20th of the status quo solution, that's probably going to be better. So that's the first thing. We look for low technical risk. Um, We assume we have technology coming out our ears. And that the problem is not that it isn't there. It's that the gap between what's possible with the technology and what's sufficiently profitable for a high tech company to do is so big that there are just gazillions of opportunities. So we don't need to take big technical risk. Uh, We write three exit options in from the start. I mean, we're a tech company. Ten years from now, we should not be doing any of the things that we're doing today. If we have, we've probably failed. So how do we get out of this? And that might be how might we sell this venture to a for-profit? How might we sell it to a non-profit? How might we merge it with a money-rich, idea-poor non-profit? Because we're, relatively speaking, a money-poor, idea-rich non-profit. And maybe the two of us can get together. And we have other options for different ventures depending on the nature of the venture. Because we have to get out of this business. What's the sustainability model? How three or four years from now are we not going to be raising money to keep plugging a gap of what it costs us to run this enterprise? And Benetech as a whole, with seven social enterprises today, is about 85 to 90% revenue covered. So in other words, of our budget, 85 90% of it comes from our customers. Some, in some social sectors, it's the third-party payers for our users. Depends on depends on which segment we're talking about. But K-12 education... Students don't pay for it, right? Someone else is paying for it. and so, But it's that other bit of money that we have to raise. And our goal is, how are we not going to be having to use that philanthropy, that 10%, to keep this thing going? Where are we going to find the customers to pay for it? And the list goes on. So we were looking at a number of ventures. And the first couple of ventures we started, one is the human rights field. Um, and this is one where it's harder to find a revenue model because the developing world human rights movement is not all that wealthy. Um, but it's an information processing industry with no IT. So uh, at least no IT custom. And that's, that's something that Benetech does. We don't write word processor software for the environmental movement or the human rights movement. We look for the, for the couple of things that's unique to that social vertical, as it were, and we write the software that solves that problem. So if you're in construction... You know, you basically have construction management packages designed to help you manage construction projects. That's your vertical solution. But in the human rights field, what's different about them? They track human rights violations. That's the only asset they have, actually, is the legitimate stories of people suffering from human rights abuses. That's what that field does. And that field basically takes the raw grassroots material, and then they refine it through national groups, or issue-based groups, whether it's women's rights or LGBT groups or, or minority groups, and then finally at the apex of this industry, you have Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the UN, and the people at the apex have IT resources. They have an IT department. You know, they might be a three hundred million dollar organization. Well, well, the UN's bigger than that. But I mean, but most people in the rest of that pyramid don't have any resources. So, so now um, we created a software tool called Martis, it's a Greek word for witness. It's uh, open source and free, where groups. CAPTURE THE STORIES OF HUMAN RIGHTS SUFFERING. AND THEN WE WENT BEYOND THAT. BUT I'LL COME BACK TO THAT IN A SECOND. BUT THAT WAS OUR FIRST VENTURE IN THE HUMAN RIGHTS FIELD. AND THEN OUR FIRST VENTURE BEYOND MAKING READING MACHINES TO THE BLIND WAS A LOGICAL FOLLOW-ON, BUT THE IDEA ACTUALLY CAME VIA MY four, THEN 14-YEAR-OLD SON, JIMMY. And, um, AND I THINK YOU GUYS WILL CONNECT with, WITH THIS, OR AT LEAST SOME OF YOU WILL, AND THE REST OF YOU WILL CONNECT LATER. Um, so, um, if you're the father of a 14-year-old boy, you don't get to spend a lot of time with your son. right? And so, and that's just the way it goes. So, But one night I came home, and there was a new icon on our home PC. Someone installed some software. And that was something I said, never install software from the internet. Talk to me. And so I said, Jimmy, did you do this? Yes, Dad, I did, but it's not from the internet. So where is it? Well, it comes from Chris's mom. Oh, you mean Eileen, who lives on the corner? Yeah, yeah, she's the CEO, acting CEO of a, of a startup company, and, and it's her software, so it's not from the internet. It's OK. I'm like, oh, great, what's the name of the company? Napster. What's Napster, Jimmy? Oh, Dad, I'll show you. And then Jimmy and I spent the next hour you know, downloading music. And Jimmy was in the 90s punk, and so this is like, like 2000, right? So, you know, so he was downloading 90s punk, and I was downloading Pat Benatar You know, when I was your age. I had music like that. And, you know, and at the end of the hour, it's like, it's like the most fabulous technology experience I've ever had. My son is talking to me. We're having a good time. Like Jimmy, I don't care what this costs. I'll pay anything. What, 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 what does Eileen think she's going to charge? Oh, it's all free. Oh, this is so illegal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so cool. So the next day, I called my lawyer and I said, I've just seen the future of disability services and it's Napster. He says, what is this? I said, We're going to invent this thing called Bookster. And our 40,000 users who are all scanning in books are going to Napsterize the book and share it with each other. Because I said, look, when Harry Potter comes out, 2,000 families buy Harry Potter. They all spend four hours scanning the book a page at a time. And then at the end of four hours, so that's uh, how, how many person years? I thought it was four or eight. I used to be able to do um, you know, After all those person years, you have, each of those families has a crappy OCR, unproofread version of Harry Potter. What if we scanned it once, and someone proofread it, and then those thousands of families and another 10,000 families that wasn't going to go through that hassle could actually download it and have that book be available to their blind kid or their first <coughs> lexicon. And my attorney said, well, I don't know about this Bookster thing. It sounds pretty radical, and I'm, you know, the publishers will see you. But I'll, I'll do some research. And then he came back the day after and he said, it's legal under the US copyright law. And I said, really? He said, yeah. There's this provision in our copyright code that says a nonprofit that's serving people with disabilities can turn any book, without paying a royalty or getting permission, into accessible formats for disabled people. It's like, score, you know? <laughs> when you come up with something that should be illegal that isn't? And so, um, but he said, the bookster name, got to get rid of it. So, uh, so, so we renamed it Bookshare. And a year before launching Bookshare, my attorney, because he was well connected, got us to address the publishing industry, essentially the copyright committee of the Association of American Publishers. And these are the general counsels of all the top publishers in New York, right? And I give them this great story about how Bookshare is gonna solve this problem and it's gonna be great, and and you know, and and I think the, the main lawyer said something along the lines of Nobody has ever come and told us of their plans to steal our content in advance before. <laughs> I said, that's not theft. It's the bargain and copyright law. You know, you get to make copies and make money. And we're going to, you know, it's like fair use. I hate fair use too, so that didn't help. But, but anyway, so, so Bookshare became essentially Amazon meets Napster meets talking books for the blind, but legal, right? So Amazon, it's all online, Napster, it's so the first library for the blind that was developed by blind people themselves scanning for each other. The majority of our volunteers, the majority of the books came from blind people who had scanned the books using our scanners, and we're now going to share that with everybody else. Um, talking books for the blind, but we, we, we chose a different technology. We chose ebook technology rather than audio. Right? So the traditional library for the blind was doing human narration, which is very expensive to do, even with volunteers. We were doing essentially digital ebooks like word processor files. And we picked a standard that happens to be the same standard now that goes into the Kindle and to the iBook. So, so, nine years ago we picked a pretty good standard, and uh, and the legal thing was the copyright exception. So I'm going to fast forward. Six years in, this is a million dollar a year social enterprise. I promised my board that after three years it would be break even from revenues, and we're bringing in three hundred grand in revenue, and I'm having to raise seven hundred thousand dollars from Piero Omidyar and Jeff Skoll and some of these other sort of donor types to fill the gap. And we're missing plan. And the board is like, all right, Jim, it's time. <laughs> and um, we had seven strategies for breaking out of this sort of losing money thing that had gone on too long. Because we really believed in the idea. And um, we had evolutionary strategies and revolutionary strategies. You know? So evolutionary was we were going to get better. Revolutionary, we would merge with our biggest competitor. You know? We offered to merge with them. They ignored us. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Department of Education, which we had never Expected to ever get money. One year, earmarks didn't get made, and our big competitor got earmarks. And they said, oh, We'll run a competition. So I got two emails from the Department of Ed saying, Have you seen this competition? And it was a $32.5 million competition. And we said, Well, what the hell? We'll apply for it. And as a novice bidder, we won a $32 million contract from the Department of Ed to provide books to all students with disabilities nationwide. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And that wasn't on our list of strategies, but we took it. (laughs) And so now Bookshare has gone from then we were serving about 3,000 students and 3,000 adults. We now serve 150,000 students around the nation. We had promised by the end of year five we'd be serving 100,000. So we've already beat the goal by 50%, and it looks at our current rate of growth. We'll serve more than 200,000 students by the end of the five years. Um, The publishing industry has gone from going, you know, you're stealing our books to now... 75% 75% of the books added to our collection come from the publishing industry voluntarily and with rights to distribute them outside the United States, which our copyright exception doesn't give us. So they kind of said, eh, not a market for us. Here, take care of, of this segment that we're not selling to. Right? And so um, that means that we're adding 25,000 books, 30,000 books a year. You know, Random House sends 200 books to the Kindle. They send 200 books to us. We turn them into disability-specific formats. And, and, our, and our main format is the voice synthesizer. Which sounds better than it did back when we got started, but you can still tell it's a machine. And so, but we do—we output Braille, we output large print, and now uh, we're growing internationally. So, you know, and 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 we don't know what the exit option is, but the one that we're trying to talk the publishers into is selling accessible books from the get-go. We said, look, we're serving the one percent of the population that's too disabled to read a print book. But 20% of the population would benefit from a book that read to them because they're English language learners, they're struggling readers, whatever. And we can't give the, your, your product to them for free because that's 20% of your market. And that would, that would really irritate the publishers if we did that. So, and that's one of our exit options is that maybe one of these days the publishers will now sell these books successfully. We won't need this specialized format. So, so I think that gives you kind of this flavor for, for the different ways that we approach this. And... You know, technology social enterprise isn't just Benetech. When I had the $5 million, I started digging around. And I met a couple of people. Um, one of them happened to be Greg Dees, <laughs> who said, well, you know, there is this field. And you know, there's this Harvard Business Review article on, on this sort of thing. There, you're, you're part of the social innovation. I got to meet Jed Emerson, another pioneer in the field. And so suddenly we found out that we were part of a field. And, and we started to find that there were a lot of other people like us who had been sort of pioneering without knowing that there were other people doing these more business-like nonprofits that kind of kind of used these terms and they were doing them in all sorts of other areas technology was actually one of the least popular areas for doing it job creation huge health issues huge education there's a lot of these ventures going on and of course that's what case studies here at at Duke, and also tries to spread the good word about how students and other innovators could be doing these sort of social innovation approaches. It's great for us. There's a lot of IT people, a lot of technology people doing this. And and there are analogs of what we do in every single field. So pick pick an example. Um, Victoria Hale is a pharmaceutical scientist. Um, She went into pharmaceuticals because she wanted to save lives. And I'm going to state her problem in a way that she never would, but I can do it because I don't have to apologize for not marketing her quite correctly. But um, imagine there are two drugs. This drug saves 100,000 lives a year. And this drug makes men feel better about themselves. Now, if the 100,000 people a year are poor people in the developing world, no pharma company in our society can touch that with a 10-foot pole. They're going to go and work on making men feel better about themselves. Because that lifestyle drug is going to make them billions, and has, as we know. So, so, so what we have is a whole bunch of people went into pharma to save lives. And we basically told them, unless they're rich people in the developed world, we're not interested in saving their lives, because we can't make a business case. So Victoria did the same thing we do. But she went to a pharma companies. and said, here's this drug. Here's this application to a parasite that kills all these people. You decided not to market it. Why don't you let me license it and market it? And so she gets it through clinical trials, and she knows how to do clinical trials for ten million dollars instead of five hundred million dollars, for reasons that if you actually sat back and thought about how to minimize your clinical trial costs but do them professionally as opposed to minimize your time delay to getting to market with a patented drug that only has a certain time to have its it's basically its monopoly. You know you can shift the gears and reinvent how we bring drugs to poor people. And now there are multiple nonprofit pharma companies. And Victoria's already gone to start a second pharma company. The first one worked on anti, um, basically, fighting parasites, these things that kill a lot of people. Now she's working on maternal health and diseases of children. Why? A pregnant woman no pharma company ever wants to give drugs to because it's got liability written all over it. And so we just don't study drug interactions in pregnant women because the, the pharma companies don't want... It's not going to pay off. And so, as a nonprofit, Victoria can take that risk. So, there are examples like Victoria in every area that revolves around intellectual property. And my message to people in business schools and alums of business schools and professors is you know, we have these great things that we've created, and we have to find an engine for sustainability that justifies the risk capital, right? We have to do business. But, when we've decided that our business is going there, and there's this cool social thing off to the side here that we're not going to do, be open to basically, I say, you know, giving the sleeves off your vest. If you weren't going to go after that market anyway, and the entrepreneur or the social entrepreneur who wants to use that is going to agree not to interfere with your mainstream market, which is the deal that we cut with the publishing industry, the Victoria cut with the pharma companies. It's so like, look, you guys will look good. Your employees will be proud. You'll have saved a lot of lives. And you will not have lost any money, and you might even make a little bit of money, because you might find another application for this drug in the developed markets that you didn't want to do the risk of finding out whether or not there was an opportunity there. So it's a fabulous opportunity, I think, for leveraging this. And, and you know, I think the culture of business has gone to we're a little bit more than, you know anything that isn't, does not make our shareholders money is not worth doing, right? We, we, we think more broadly. Certainly the, the students that I talk to want to be working on something that makes them a living and matters. And that's still going to be the majority in the business community, but there are all these great opportunities to kind of do this. And, and to be really honest, when I go to a technology company, and instead of asking them for money, I'd love to get their money, but when I ask them for their stuff, a license to their thing, their marginal cost to give me their thing is so little, that the issue is really around the transaction costs of negotiating a license, but when I actually make that ask, I get what we ask for eighty to ninety percent of the time. Now, unfortunately for CSR people, I get that by going around the CSR people <laughs> because you know it's because their job is actually to protect the line managers from people like me. But somehow we find our way to get. Get this in front. The CSR people actually help us with volunteerism, so we love them for that. But, but you know, but these opportunities are out there, and I hope that just some of these different examples that I've given you give an idea of the range of opportunities that are just lying on the ground. So, so what I really want to do, you know, I've talked about a lot of our different ventures. I want to tell you about some of the new things that aren't on our website, because. That's the most fun thing to do. So this is, and of course, we're an open source organization. The reason they're not on our website is because we don't want to promise things that we're not delivering yet. So it's more about setting expectations low. And, uh, and, and, and both of these projects haven't launched yet. So anything I say could be you know, completely different when it launches. But, but we run this process every year of ideas coming in. And our ideas come in from all over the field. It used to be that we would invent the ideas. Now, most of the ideas come from outside of Benetech. And people have this sort of thumbnail sketch. you know. It's IT or data or content. It's going to do a lot of social good. It's not going to make money. Benetech should do it. <laughs> and, and so what we do is we say, well, we'll help a lot of those folks. But we will find, we think, the one idea a year. And unfortunately, last year, we got carried away and we picked two. So, and, and one of the reasons we picked two is we didn't think this first one was going to turn into a real social enterprise. But it turns out that it does. So um, So social problem, technology solution. The social problem is that there's now 50 to 100 nonprofit tech organizations or for-profit social enterprises that are trying to use technology to help society in lots of different ways, but IT. So app developers, you know, app cloud developers, I mean, there's all these things going on, mobile developers. So we have lots of people who want to volunteer for us. The mismatch between the average volunteer that shows up to Benetech and what our needs are is huge. Because you know, even though we have seven projects, most people show up and say, well, I really want to work in education, and I'm a Ruby on Rails programmer. Or I'm a, huge, you know, a human interface designer, and I want to do a new project for you, and we haven't got any new projects that need a human interface designer until a year from now. So what happens is we say, sorry, we can't use you. And then our entire sector just lost that person. They, they reached out, probably because of a personal connection to a social enterprise they heard about. So you know, they have a dyslexic cousin. They heard about us. They want to help because they, they think we're cool. Um, They're excited about the Khan Academy because their kid is using Khan Academy videos, and they reach out, and they don't go, you know, whatever it is. So um, we were going to set up a thing to make it easier to match our volunteers to our projects by kind of advertising what skills we were looking for. And then we started talking to our other peer organizations, Mozilla Foundation, Wikimedia Foundation, um, Ushahidi, uh, Frontline SMM. I mean, there's a whole bunch of these these groups, and we all had the same problem. And we all felt that the inefficiency of how we were dealing with volunteers was so big that if we actually pooled all our efforts, we would all net benefit. We'd all net get more qualified volunteers, even if this volunteer that currently was volunteering from Mozilla you know, on the Firefox project decided to move over to our project, net this would do it. So it's called Social Coding for Good. It's launching in a pilot form next month. And so we had the demand side down, and then we thought we'd go and talk to CSR people At uh, at high tech companies. And it turns out, like the first company we talked to said, Oh, yeah, we'd like to pay our people to go volunteer on projects like this. And that's VMware, um, which is actually quite a large Silicon Valley company. I think it has more than 10,000 employees in Silicon Valley. But most people haven't heard of it because they don't have a retail facing face, but they're like underneath the hood of a lot of huge websites. And then we talked to HP, and they said, Yeah, we'll assign seven VPs to help you with your marketing plan. I mean, it's like, you know, and so suddenly we found out, oh, there's this demand side. So that's what we're going to launch: is sort of this match between companies looking for meaningful volunteerism in sectors where companies feel like they can do volunteerism. So we probably won't get a lot of human rights from high tech companies because that's not an area that human rights, well, that that, that the philanthropy of high tech companies goes into because they want to do business in China for whatever reason they might want to do business in China. So, but you know, environment, education. Um, uh, Social justice that doesn't irritate the Chinese. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, they, they might actually sign up for that. Sorry if I sometimes, I'm sort of an optimist, optimistic cynic sometimes. but uh, So anyway, they're, they're really excited about this. And they, and they, and they want to have this matchmaking. And they want, they want the slice of their employees that want to volunteer on projects that leverage their professional skills to really work out. And they see this as a way to do it. Because a lot of employees want to you know, plant trees or tutor kids. I mean, there's a lot of other things. But, but if you want to say, nah, I'm, I'm a human interface designer, and I would really like to, to do something kick-ass for, you know, this, uh, for Khan Academy, you know, if Khan Academy needs you right then, it would be great if you could find out. And so so, anyway, so that's launching. So that's a new venture. And then, um, and then the other one was um, a pair of clean energy entrepreneurs from Bangladesh met me at an international conference. And they said, Jim, if Benetech does anything in the next year, you need to write software for a local government to deal with climate change. And I said, I know 50 people are working on software for climate change. What would we do? Because one of our other criteria is we want to be unique or, or like bring something. And I said, look, there's, these guys are doing carbon accounting, and these people are doing you know this kind of tracking. And they said, no, 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 it's more basic. A local government that decides they want to do something about climate change, and then actually doing something, There's there's no software that gets them from the aspiration, or it could be a legal requirement. In California, all of our local government has to come up with a climate action plan, and so, so it may be a legal requirement. It may be a political commitment. You know, the mayor ran on a platform reducing the metro area's greenhouse gases by 20%, or reducing dependence on foreign oil, because we don't believe in climate change. is caused by humans. So what, whatever your political issue is, we don't care. We're trying to try to match you up with what will actually work with your, with your community. And the cool thing is, is that... This is the same thing we've done for the environmental movement already. So we already write the main project management package for environmental groups to help them like a construction project, but an environmental project. And in the human rights field, it's the same issue. We're helping people gather data. None of them will share sensitive data with their competitors for a variety of political and confidentiality reasons. But as a tech group, people will share data with us. So we figured, well, we can get these communities to share how things really went. Because any climate change project that happens at the local level is, by definition, successful. It's like nonprofit projects are by definition successful because no one can fail, and the money was spent. And if you tell donors that it failed, they will stop funding you. So everyone is successful, right? But if you actually contact the person who ran the project and say, if you were to do it again, what wouldn't you do? They might tell a peer what really happened. Or if you say, we'll aggregate your actual project results data, and you won't be fingered as the people who failed. You'll just be part of... The sector learned that this particular technique for saving sea turtles didn't work. We already know so much in so many of these social areas, and we have systematically made it difficult to share the knowledge. So if we can come up with a way to do that, you know, this, we call this city options. But it's going to be web-based. It's probably going to be a 5 or $10 million a year social enterprise that might actually influence the deployment of hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure investment. And I don't have time to go through all of it. And of course, we haven't written a line of code yet. So Whatever I tell you, could be false. But, but the need is there. It, it leverages the assets that we have, the incredible investment we've made in clean energy technologies. And another approach is to helping people be more energy efficient. There's, these things are out there, but the inefficiency of matching up, that this is a community that so totally needs to replace their lighting with, with LED lights, but they don't know that because they've got a vendor who wants to sell them something else, and they're the only vendor that's showing up, so they buy that, right? You know, we could... We could do this. And, and, and that's where I think technologists can come in, is to be this, we're not trying to sell products. We're just trying to actually sort of reduce the transaction costs, influence, and make more efficient these kind of processes so that more social good is done. So I really hope that I've inspired you to, when you come up with an idea for some social good that's based on a company you're working for, and you see this, and it's not going to be practical. Or you have an idea of how you want to become a social entrepreneur and get it started, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit. I don't much care. What I really hope is that the incredible creativity we have, the incredible technology and intellectual property assets that we've created, they are not fully serving all of humanity. They're focused on the top 10%, with a few rare exceptions, because that's the way our system works. And our system works great for that. But what about the other 90%? There are these sustainable models, the revenue models, that actually can pay people an honest wage to actually do social good and make a huge impact. And I ultimately think that's what most people really want to do. They want to do something really well, solve problems, make a living, be successful. What would be better than solving a huge intractable social problem with some unique skill and insight that you've brought to bear on that problem? I can't imagine what it would be. So yes. Go forth and conquer. So um, I'm, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to you about these things. I'm glad in the last few minutes that we have to answer a few questions and hopefully do my part, not only in advancing what Benetech is trying to do, but advance this field of social entrepreneurship, of social innovation, and harness the imagination that we have to see that our intellectual creations, our technology, our science, benefit all of humanity, not just the top 10%. Thanks.
0: I microphone to uh, make sure it's recorded Thanks. I'm usually pretty loud. Uh, so you talk about the field of social entrepreneurs and how you discovered it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you
1: talk a little bit more about what it then did for you? And how how it then helped you define yourself mm-hmm. in your business? And then what do you think are the main opportunities to, uh, you know, for students like us? Or, or mm-hmm to help advance it? So um, when I was a high-tech entrepreneur, the number one way that I learned about how to start a high-tech company was that the venture capitalist would introduce me to other entrepreneurs who were further along in the process. And, um, and we called these sort of, um, someone suggests that you go talk to someone you have no idea why, go do it anyway, right? Because it's, it's a process of peer learning, People share information with peers. They're telling you how the VCs work, or how to get office space, or what your lawyers will do, and they're also checking you out on behalf of the venture capitalists that invested in them to say, "Yeah, these guys look like they're fundable, right? So, so this is this is actually the way these systems work. The same thing happened to me when I found out that I was a social entrepreneur, right? Because my friends in Silicon Valley thought I was just nuts, right? I remember, remember one of my one of, one of my I think it was my real estate broker said, "Yeah." So let me get this straight. You're going to take this public and pocket all the money, right? And I'm like, no, I'd go to jail. It's a <laughs> charity, you know. But because people just didn't get how this would work. And so when I met people like Greg and Jed Emerson, they said, well, you know, there are these other. And they said, there's a gathering of the social entrepreneurs happening in Miami. So it was the first formal gathering. And at that gathering, what is now today the Social Enterprise Alliance was founded. And I was one of the founding board members. Because I was so thrilled to find a few people like me. And they weren't like me. They weren't engineers. Most of them hadn't been business people. But they were like social workers who had gotten their MBA. Right? I mean, so we, they, could, they could talk business and social, and their head wouldn't explode. And that was much more like me than, than the people I was normally working with. And so, so I think the, the most valuable thing in a field where there isn't a book. And there still isn't a book on how to be a social entrepreneur. I mean, there's, a, there's some good case study books, right? You know, and so, so where it comes in handy? You have organizations like the Social Enterprise Alliance, which is now getting lots and lots of chapters going, um, where people are getting together and saying, how are we going to advance you know, the Chicago area in employing more disadvantaged youth, or whatever, or whatever the issues are, and people getting together helps them solve problems. I started um, a CEO, social enterprise CEOs group in the Bay Area where about 15 social enterprise CEOs get together. Because you know, if you're in business, you've got you know, Vistage, or whatever it is, or, you know, or the American Electronics Association. Or, but we didn't have anything like that. And then you know, people learn from stories. They learn from real stories. They actually learn from stories that illustrate failure and challenge, which isn't actually a dominant meme. But you know, when Case does a case study on why this person succeeded or what the challenge is. You learn more from that than you learn from reading a book on the theory of how social change happens, and so, so I think that's that's the role. And so when students come to me and say, "Well, how do we get involved?" I said, "Well, you know, social business plan competitions, and the quality of plans in social enterprise business plans have just gone great guns. I mean, when I started judging these eight or ten years ago, they were aspirational. <laughs> now I see you plan. I see you know." 20 plans and, and I figure that two of them will really be social enterprises that'll be up and running a year from now. It's happening all the time. People are going immediately from these sort of things and launching ventures. And and you know, I mean, I started two successful high-tech companies, for-profit companies in Silicon Valley. I started seven. Right? You know, that's that's not atypical. So just the process of getting something launched, you will learn so much from doing that. So so it's a lot about just getting out there and doing it and and, uh, and the other thing that I didn't really get when I was in school was how brilliant all my classmates were, because we all thought we were all stupid, right? Because <laughs> you know? we, had, we had professors who you know, would win Nobel Prizes, and, and they just seemed like way up here. And you're looking at you know, your drunk buddy and go, how is he ever going to turn into a thing? Well, it turns out that they do. <laughs> and it's probably more true when you're in business school than when you're an undergrad. but, but you know, and so, so anyway, those connections. Even for an engineer, it turned out to be really handy. So those are just a few ideas. So I don't know if there was another question. That, uh, yeah, we've got, got one here and one okay, and up there. Great. So you've shared a number of successes mm-hmm. that um, you've had with Benetech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe being part of a serial entrepreneur is probably failing mm-hmm. and okay, learning from those failures. Can you share some influential failures that you've had or Benetech's had? So uh, Benetech has a threshold for when we commit to a project. And that threshold is about $100,000. So we have quite a number of ventures that we've spent $10,000 or $20,000 and then kind of put it back on the shelf. It's not ready. We've had one venture that passed $100,000 and failed. And we wrote a detailed, lessons-learned brief on why we failed with the humanitarian landmine detector project. And the cool thing is, is that our donors supported us writing the grant, because we ended up returning the donor's money. But we said, can we spend like five grand of the money on actually documenting why we failed? <laughs> because we actually thought that this was such an important field. And, and the reason we failed, and it's online, um, and I know there's this website for posting failures, so I went ahead and uh, you know, pointed it to that. But it's um it's you know basically you search for Ben Attack Humanitarian Landmine Detector, you'll find this, this postmortem. And it's also, I also blogged it in the Bennett blog, which is my blog. But um, and this was this was a strange one for us. Um, GE bought a company that had invented an explosives detection technology. It had been funded by the military for military uses. The reason GE bought it is that it was a shoe bomb detector. Because what we mainly do is we detect metal or we detect shapes that look bad. That's the new technology. This actually detects the explosive itself, right? And it's a very cool technology. It's a magnetic resonance technology. I met with the GE engineers. The coolest thing they could imagine. Their technology being used for was humanitarian demining. Because our military doesn't do a lot of demining, right? I mean, they have the capacity, they'll pay for it, but that's not. A, but in the humanitarian zone, people are getting blown up all over the world from mines that were from five years ago or 50 years ago, right? So, so it, was, it, was, it was a real issue. We went out and talked to people in the field, there was a need. and we, And we thought the technical challenge was going to be the big one. How are we going to cost reduce this from being a military? you know, $30,000 device to being a humanitarian few-thousand-dollar device. That was not what the problem was. The problem was we couldn't get permission from the Defense Department and the Commerce Department to export the technology. It turns out that demining technology is classified as an offensive munition under our export laws. And so we had to simultaneously have permission. So what happened is everyone said they would give us permission, but then the paperwork would never arrive. And after this went on for 18 months, which was, that was one of our mistakes. It went on too long, because we were just so hopeful. We thought, this is so important. They're going to let us do it. And then finally we realized, no, they're not. And I asked someone, and, and this is we were politically unsophisticated. We've become much more politically sophisticated since, because we realized this was a complete Achilles Hill for us. And, uh, and hopefully we won't make the underestimating political risk mistake again. But we, we shared it. And, and, uh, and uh, I've got a long list of other ventures I could share, but that's the one that I think is most apparent for the Benetech experience. So. Yeah. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And my question is, when you faced those difficult situations when mm-hmm. you know, things didn't turn out uh, quite as you
0: expected,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what helped you to stay with your commitment to your conviction for social change? And how did you stay with it?
1: You know, it's to be an entrepreneur, you have to be kind of pig-headed, right? Because most times people are telling you why it's not going to work. And usually there's some time when it's failed. And the challenge is when to keep on being pig-headed and when to drop it, right? And, and that's a really tough issue. I mean, I have had friends who really believed in their venture. And you know, it didn't work for a couple of years, and so they mortgaged their house. It didn't work for a couple years, and, you know, and eventually, after seven or eight years, they failed, and they lost their house, and they ended up, you know. I mean, so sometimes you just, you know, so it's like, where's the balancing act? And I wish I could tell you what the metric was on why sticking with Bookshare made sense three years past its sort of sell-by date. You know, it's, it's when it was supposed to be break-even. But we really, really, really did believe that it was going to revolutionize this field, and we weren't going to drop it, whereas the landmine detector... Just we just realized we were just hanging out there and it wasn't going to go anywhere. And we put it on ice. And, you know, we laid the people off and said, but it, they said, look, if you if you ever get past this, we want to come back because, I mean, it's very easy for us to get people to want to join in on projects like this. People want to do it. And then you know, another four years has gone by and we haven't seen any movement on this. So, but um, the the other thing and and um, so. I'm a high-tech entrepreneur, right? I've started a couple companies. I started them in the 80s. And when you had successful companies in the 80s, you didn't make as much money as you did today, okay? Or in the 90s, right? So so my company was bought by a public company for $40 million, and I think I netted $800,000 at it, which meant I have a house and I could send my kids to college. I told my wife that I would do this nonprofit thing for a year and then hire an executive director and go back to my regular high-tech thing. And after six years of being... Running both a high tech company and my nonprofit, we had to choose, and as a couple, we decided that I would stick with the nonprofit, and step out of being a CEO of, of a regular high tech company. Um, this is my second successful high tech company, and um, and it was you know it, it's it's a choice, right? And people who go in this field, I mean, you can make a living as a social entrepreneur. You're not going to get rich, and but. Um, I'm pretty sure that this was the right choice for me, and I, think it, I like to think it'll be a, the right choice for quite a number of people. And there are a lot of people working in the nonprofit sector, working in education. You realize there are an awful lot of brilliant people, committed people, sophisticated people who are making a decision to do something for a greater good and not maximizing their personal opportunity. And sometimes people out of my community think that there's something wrong with people who make the choice to be a teacher. right? And actually being in there, It's like getting to know your customers, right? Customers are never defective, right? I never heard any high-tech company say that their customers were defective. That's why the product failed. (laughs) So I said get to know the people that you really want to help. I think the essence of social entrepreneurship is being in partnership with the community you want to help. They may be your customer, they're your partner. They are most definitely not those people down there that you're bestowing beneficence and charity on. And I think that, that changes the equation and that also creates that sustaining, right? Because you're not doing it to just make a buck, you're doing it to, to help your partners actually make the change that they desperately want to do. And as toolmakers, it's not our tech tool that makes the change. It's what people do with it. It's what they build with it that actually makes the change. So I don't know, do we have time for a last question? Or oh, we have or two? Or it's up to you to tell us. Okay, great. I do
0: have a question. Um, yeah. Thank, thanks so much uh, for coming and speaking with us. Uh, it's been an honor to, to hear you speak. Um, wondering, so I'm
1: somebody who's interested in uh, the field of socially innovative technology, but I'm not necessarily somebody who, who has technical expertise. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what recommendations you might have for somebody who's interested in the world, but you know, is, has a you know, general humanities background here at business school. I maybe uh, have, have a lot of similarities with some folks here, but, but is really interested in that field, what recommendations might you have? Well, you know, when you hear from an engineer, you hear the engineer centric point of view, right? and And you know the majority of our company are not engineers. <laughs> you know We have product managers and customer service people and marketing people and business development people and finance people. and I mean, so all ventures need this complete package of and so you know um, our our really successful, the person who does almost all of our outreach to human rights groups, you know, graduated as a liberal arts major from a major university four years ago. And she's like the world's leader in this, because that's one of the benefits of being in a small organization, right, is you can be right up at the, at the front. But what I tell people is, you know, get involved. I mean, part of, part of this uh, social coding for good, even though it's about coding, it turns out that coding is one of five things that you need to be have a successful tech product, right? You need a human factors designer. You need a tester. You need someone who's going to actually market it, someone who's going to project manage it. Oh, and you actually do need someone to write the software. But the thing is, it's just about the software. So, so I think that very quickly people forget about what your undergraduate degree is or was in, and start focusing on what have they done, what problems have they solved, and you know, did we hear that they you know, make solutions appear out of thin air? That turns out to be much more valuable to entrepreneurs like me than whether or not you got the right degree. Great. Well, thank you very much.
0: So, Jim, on behalf of the case team and the students here at the Fuqua School of Business, we'd like to present you with our third annual award for enterprising social innovation. Maybe we can stand up here, and I can give you the, the oh, we, I, such okay, such so. <laughs> but so Jim, thank you so much. It's been it's been a lot, so, thank really appreciate you. it. <laughs> Produced by Duke University. Online at duke.edu.